The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. This is a newscast for episode 108 for the week of March 11th, 2019. And this is Rob Reck. And this is Alex Wood. And we're back together. It's been a few weeks. Back together and it feels so good. Oh, <laughs> I'll be totally honest. It doesn't feel as good as being in Mexico laying on a beach. Uh, okay. I'll grant you that. Um, or not together in the, the rainy weather in San Francisco. Right. Yeah. We, we uh, So I had a week in, in just south of Cancun. With just my wife, the the kids were with grandparents. It was unbelievable, and uh, a little bit of context for everyone: if you were in Denver on the the Saturday before that, I can't remember thought my what the date was, but like the twentieth or whatever that was. Uh, I had to. I, we had a, a really early flight, and so to get to the the Uber or the Lyft actually to take me to the airport, I had to shovel about eight inches of snow. <laughs> that perfect at three a.m. At three a.m. I go I go to go out to the car and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's this much snow. So my wife and I both shoveled snow to get out to the car, um, and of, of course to make sure that in your shorts and your flip flops because you were going to Mexico uh, with the shorts and flip flops underneath all of the butt layers, right? So we go to Mexico for a full week, fantastic. Come back that Saturday, the second of March, and um, and, and if you guys remember last Saturday, it snowed that night. Uh, overnight it was another like six inches at my house. I got up on Sunday and I shoveled snow to get in, to get to the, the lift to take me to the airport to go to RSA. So that was my Colorado experience for that week. That, that sounds like fun. Uh, sounds of course like we fun. enjoyed a lot of rain in San Francisco and we made it back safe. We did. Uh, did you have any, any highlights of the trip? Um, you know, RSA gets bigger every year. I wouldn't say bigger and better. Um, you know, had a good time, learned a few things, but it's always nice just seeing people and uh, sort of getting the experience. Yeah, it, there are. It is fun to have sightings of, of friends who, you, who I only see once a year and um, who, I, who I'd like to see more often. I think also it, it's funny because the basically the entire um, cybersecurity world is there. You know, you'll be walking around all of a sudden. It's like, oh, hey, there's Marcus Raynham. Yeah. Oh, there's Miko Hypodin. There's, yeah. you, know, yeah. you know, all these people that are, you know, sort of celebrities in our in our world. You just, they're, they're just walking around with people doing whatever they're doing. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yep. All right. Well, we have a little bit of housekeeping to talk through. Uh, Alex, we have a Slack channel. Well, this we is, do. This, this is news to you or what? Uh, we just surpassed 800 people finally. We've been talking about that coming and Woo-hoo. and we're well on our way to our next milestone. I think we were at 802 last I saw. We're almost to 900. Uh, we also have a mailing list, so go to the website, colorado-security.com, sign up for that. You'll get the show notes in the mail uh, every Sunday when we release the podcast. Uh, on that same website, you can also find the link to join the Slack channel if you want to make it easy on yourself. Uh, we would love it if you would rate us and subscribe to get the podcast from your favorite listener. You don't have to go scourging, scavenging, scouraging, scour, scouring or scavenging. I'm not just, sure what I'm trying to say. Scouraging. It's fine. Um, you don't have to keep looking for the podcast every week. It can be delivered directly into your, uh, your player every week. And if you do that, you should rate us also and tell everyone how great of a podcast it is. Yeah. And it's, while you're telling people about the podcast, why don't you tell one of your coworkers or friends or a lover, uh, tell, <laughs> Tell one of these people about the podcast. We'd love to have them listening. Uh, and, you know, it's one way <laughs> It's one way you can support the show. If you, if you want to support us financially, um, you can also go to our Patreon page. Again, you can find the link to Patreon on colorado-security.com. 
um, and you can support us financially. Uh, give a, a little little contribution that we can use to pay for the costs of running the podcast. All, all that bandwidth. That's right. It it all comes out of uh, our pockets. You know, we pay for this out of the goodness of our hearts. And our Patreon supporters. So we'd love to have more on there. We do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, Alex's pockets are relatively empty. Uh, so so really, this is helping out. Uh, Alex and Tama would appreciate it very much. Uh, next, speaking of Patreon, we have we have a, a new patron to thank this week. We do. Uh, big thanks to Josh Stewart. Josh has, has signed up at the $10 a month uh, level, which is awesome. Josh, thank you so much for your support. Yeah. Uh, Josh is actually interning for us at Pulte Financial Services. And by no... Uh, coercion of mine. He signed up to support the podcast. So thank you, Josh. Appreciate appreciate that. As a, as a benefit, as a couple of benefits he gets for sponsoring us at that level, uh, he gets a Colorado equal security shirt and he also gets the shout out on the show. So here's your shout out and Alex is going to bring you your shirt. All right, let's jump right into the news. Um, first article, does Hyperloop transportation have a future in Colorado? You know, don't leave me hanging. Alex does it. Um, well, I am going to leave you hanging, Rob, because a couple of weeks ago we had a, a similar story to this. This one goes into a little bit more detail. Um, CDOT is actually just finishing up a transportation study that should be re- released soon, talking about the possibilities of using this type of transportation in Colorado. And they talk about four potential companies and their solutions um, that they could, they could be used in Colorado to help us alleviate congestion and get places really fast. So... I don't know if we, we haven't talked about Hyperloop in a while, like in terms of what the technology is. Um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, there are different ways that one can do it. Um, some of the Hyperloop technologies are kind of like a vacuum-ish tube that trains go shooting through. No no friction, it can go super fast. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, the the four companies all seem to have slightly different variations on that, but I think more or less it is some sort of pod in a tube. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, looking forward to that. I, I would love it if we could, you know, get rid of all of our traffic woes and just, just beam me over where I'm going. Exactly. It was like 400 miles an hour or something like that. Yeah, I think one of them they were talking about goes 150 and some of them go several hundred miles an hour. Yeah. So awesome. Well, our next story is, uh, is around, oh, excuse me, from business, Denver business journal, uh, the, the top Colorado is in the top 10 for venture capital deals by female co-founded companies in 2019. Yeah, so Colorado tied for eighth with Pennsylvania in states ranked by the amount of U.S. venture capital uh, involving female co-founded companies in the first quarter of 2019. Right, it's so not, not a lot of data yet, but seven deals already this year. Um, that's pretty great. And especially considering I, I recently ha- have heard that we don't necessarily have a lot of females in boards in Colorado. It's great to see we do have a, a good representation of co-founders in the, in the state. Uh, also nationally, startups with all female founders received $2.9 billion in venture capital in 2018. That's a pretty good amount of funding. I've never received anywhere near that much. Have you asked? <laughs> to be honest, I have not asked. All right. Uh, so congratulations to all those ladies getting some money. Uh, next, Fort Collins is partnering with a tech firm on a smarter sweet street sweeper program. Say that 10 times fast. Smart street sweeper so is this some kind of like a training on the job training that they're giving for their street sweeper staff? No, it is smarter than that. <laughs> no, <even. Rob. laughs> no, not that at all. Um, it doesn't sound like they're, uh, they're completely automating this, but it, it does sound like they're putting some, um, some software along with their street sweepers to help, um, make the, the paths better and, and optimize the routes that they use. Are they using blockchain technology along with their AI and ML? If they're not, then they are silly. <laughs> 
Well, you know, one thing that we could, uh, oh, we don't have the story in here, but we did just see some, some news this week about Denver going to blockchain based voting for, what is it for, uh, over d- deployed military. I yeah, think it was. I believe it is. Um, I think we we saved that story for next week. Well, now we didn't. So uh, what, okay, I'll, well, let's I'll, talk I'll, about it. I'll throw that into the show notes. Did, have you read the story? Are you ready to talk about it? Uh, I'm not, but we will anyway. <laughs> um, let, let me find the story here, Rob. Can you tell we've taken a couple weeks off, people? So this is about people in Denver being able to vote on their smartphone, and this is similar to a, a pilot project that was run in West Virginia uh, for the last election. It's going to be limited to overseas voters and military. Uh, I think that's about 4,000 voters in Denver. So does, what kind of problems does this actually solve, Alex? Well, I'm glad you asked, Rob. There are actually two problems that this can potentially solve. Uh, first, it replaces older technology that's already in use, which is something that they have to do per um, uh, per regulation. And, and the older technology uses email, which is which yes. is awesome. You always want yes. your votes to be going over email. Uh, Email is is like 99.9% secure, Rob. So I would trust that. That's more secure than most things. More secure than the blockchain. Um, And then the second problem is that, uh, especially with these types of uh, local elections, there's often runoffs. So there's not a whole lot of time to have the first vote, count those votes. And if they're using paper ballots, remail those paper ballots to someone overseas and then get them back in a timely manner. So having the electronic method, it can also help them go faster. So as you described this, this fantastic voting system to me, it's clear that this is the only way you could do this is via blockchain. So I'm glad that that technology has finally enabled us to make that step. They do note in the article that they keep their blockchain private is not on public servers like uh, Bitcoin, for example. I would love to have a t-shirt that said, I keep my blockchain private. (laughs) I, I bet I we can wear, I I get John Dixon to make us a t-shirt like that. I am right now wearing John Dixon's most recent shirt. You want to read this for our, our listeners? It's uh, Rob is now part of the Huawei U.S. network management team <laughs> spying on all of us. All right. Uh, next story. There's a new ISP coming to town called Starry. Uh, and they're they're offering, um, it, it sounds like, was it... Uh, Oh shoot! Uh, it's 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 high density. Uh, yeah, millimeter broadband. wave. Millimeter wave uh, for for high density like condos and apartment buildings. Right? Yeah, it, it sounds sort of five G ish, but that they're not actually calling it five G. I think it's pre five G kind of technology. But yeah, you put a, a large um, broadcast device on you say on the top of an apartment building. And then everyone in the, the apartment building would have the ability to subscribe to the, the service. Kind of an interesting factoid here. This company spun out of Aero. I, I don't know if you if you used Aero. I actually I did. I did. I, loved I guess Aero. it's Aero. Aero yes, Aero. Yes. Um, so they were the one. They were the service that would uh, allow you to stream broadcast television to your TV. So you didn't have to have an antenna in your house. And I don't think they also gave free DVR or, they did. or DVR included in the service at least. Yeah. They tried to kind of skirt the rules uh, and make a, a giant array of micro antennas so that you had uh, your own little micro antenna to technically be in compliance with the law, but then they still got the Supreme court out. Yeah. killed them. And of course, but yeah. starry has spun out of that. So it's nice yep. to see something good come from that. Very true. Um, in other startup news, there was big news over the last drum week. Drumroll. ProtectWise was acquired by Verizon. So, so ProtectWise is one of the you know mid-size, big-ish security companies here in, in Denver, Colorado. Um, they did the network 
uh, network kind of intrusion intelligence stuff. Yeah. They called it a DVR for your network, right? right? Um, yeah, start, I, started by Scott Chasen, who's been a serial entrepreneur, quite successful. I think that the category that was uh, coined for that was like NDR. I think there's some other people in that space now too, but yeah. ProtectWise was definitely early in that space. And uh, I don't know if they were a leader or not, but they were definitely unique in that space. Yeah. So they've been acquired by Verizon. You know, we don't have any details about the finances of it. I will say that, uh, you know, the last couple of years, it ProtectWise seems like they, they weren't moving forward quite as quickly. So hopefully going to Verizon will help, you know, propel this product uh, into new areas and, and help them uh, be more successful. Yeah. So uh, hopefully congratulations to that team. Hopefully this is a good thing for them and they will be able to uh, to make things better, um, even better at Verizon. We had Scott Chasen, the CEO and founder, on the show two years ago-ish. Um, so maybe we can twist twist his arm to come on the show again and talk about the exit and what what's next for the Verizon. Or excuse me, the, the ProtectWise. I guess it is Verizon, the Verizon team. Uh, now that they uh, now that they've teamed up, that'd be cool. Um, next, speaking of Colorado companies with some news, this one's maybe not quite so good. Uh, Swimlane, who's our our friends over there. They were removed from the RSA conference for not adhering to, this is a quote, to monopoly rules. Uh, an RSA conference was unavailable to comment. Yeah, so this is, is a quote from Protect or from uh, Swimlane, not from the RSA conference. Yeah, this is a press release um, that they, they, they released yeah. basically as soon as they got kicked out of the conference, right? Exactly. So they uh, sort of as a uh, PR stunt, they, pro- they staged a protest out in front of the Moscone Center they had a number of um, what they were calling security analysts who were protesting the large amount of security alerts and too the, many alerts and the lack of automation. Too many alerts. Which, hey, surprisingly, Swimlane's product helps solve those problems. Yeah. So they were standing right outside. What is that? That, that carousel right next to our Moscone Conference with their signs protesting and. Uh, I guess RSA conference didn't like this. Yeah, uh, strangely enough, I actually walked through that protest, oh, did you? and I didn't even realize it, what it was at the time. <laughs> I was funny. like, "What? What is all this stuff going on?" And that then, was a Marriott picketers. Yeah, uh, something. Yes, you see those all over the place. So um, I didn't realize what was going on, and then later I heard actually from you that they got kicked out of the conference. Uh, so there's some interesting quotes in this press release. Uh, very, <laughs> very clearly. Uh, Swimlane is not real happy with what happened. Their CFO has a quote here that says. Um, I think that RSA conference has wronged us in perhaps an irreparable way. Um, so very strong language here. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if, if anything comes out of this and, um, you know, cer- certainly sorry to hear this happened. Uh, I, there is kind of sad to see their booth all kind of yeah. curtained off after they got kicked out. It was interesting. They, the conference did not take the booth down. They just put up black pipe and drape around the booth so that you couldn't get to it, but you could still see the top of the booth, yeah. um, you know, over the pipe and drapes. So anyway, um, I guess Swimlane is still getting a little bit of PR out of it, even though it was maybe not the PR that they yeah. wanted. Well, people are talking about it, right? Yep. Uh, go ahead. Next, um, one more Colorado product announcement. Logarithm um, announced a new solution, Logarithm NDR, an automated network security solution for detecting, qualifying, investigating and responding to advanced network-borne threats. So does this is this a uh, replacement for Netmon? Is this an addition to Netmon? What do you think? Yeah, my take on it is this is a, a slightly souped-up Netmon with a new name. Because, so. I mean, Netmon's been a pretty cool tool for watching your network traffic. Yeah. Uh, and they've, they had even those those uh, pretty neat contests they did. Remember about right. a year yeah, ago? They, they had the home edition that you could do yeah. and, uh, you know, come up with a, a detection and 
win a prize. So, so it looked like uh, uh, this new one has some kind of IOT focus on it. They're, they're trying to, to have some rules specific to IOT. Um, I'm not sure what other specifics there are with the, the new version, but um, it's obviously great to see them innovating and coming up with new solutions for us. Yeah, I look forward to testing it out. Um, so there is a, a blog post this week from Andre Duran, the CEO and founder of Ping Identity. Is willful ignorance influencing your enterprise security decisions? So Alex, this is a question for you. Are you willful ignorant? Um, I might be ignorant, but I don't think it's willful, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> You're unknowingly ignorant. I like it. Yeah. Uh, so, so really, I think that the summary about this is, you know, are, are people choosing just to ignore the facts that they know around security? Is that about right? Yeah. And there was at the beginning of the article, they, they talked about, uh, some sort of psychology research talking about how this is, is sort of a human trait, you know, anything that is kind of, uh, going against your, your own ego, you kind of push back against it. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's sort of a natural tendency of humans and, um, Andre's, um, supposition here is that, you know, that sort of pushing back may be holding us back in, in certain areas in security. Yeah. And, and I think it's people's unwillingness to, to challenge, you know, the way we've always done things, right? Anytime, anytime you look at, Hey, we, well, so far what I've done has got me here. Um, you just kind of, you, the natural assumption is what I've been doing is going to get me where I want to go as right. well. Yeah. No one likes to have their baby called ugly. Um, you know, if you, again, to your point, if you've done things well, you, you like to think that you can still do them well. And maybe you don't have to challenge all the assumptions that, that you have. And I, and I do think it's a, it's a fair point. And something I try and take into my own program is, is what, you know, the risk appetite that all of our organizations should have when we're very young should be significantly higher than our risk appetite later. When, when your biggest question is, will my company survive? Does my company have a product that's worth, you know, the market even caring about? You should pre- probably be pretty risky and how you go about doing things. But later, once you've already established you have a great product market fit and you actually are growing as a company, all of a sudden the security risk starts to be something that's worth managing. Yeah, and to that point, you know, if you make a lot of assumptions at that, the beginning of that life cycle and you don't go back and revisit those, um, then you are probably missing out on things. And uh, you know, whether that's willful ignorance or not, I think it's definitely good to challenge those assumptions yeah. from time to time. So our, our next couple stories, I think, kind of go hand in hand. Uh, uh, we, we are in the you know, in a state with a lot of winners, the Colorado security companies are cleaning up this week. Winning. We are all winning. Hashtag winning. That's right. Uh, so this is the time of year at RSA when there are a number of award shows that happen. So, uh, cyber GRX, they took home gold in the 2019 cyber defense magazine, InfoSec awards and info security PGs, 2019 global excellence awards. So one trophy in each hand. They, I think so. Double fisting it. Uh, hopefully the award shows weren't at the same time. They would have had to two, send two people and they, it's, they would have to fight over. They, they have, after I know they have at least two people. I Alex. think they probably have more than yeah. one, so they can probably manage. Uh, well, and the next managed methods won the, an award for the best SaaS cloud security product. Yeah. And this was for the cyber defense magazine uh, InfoSec awards. So, uh, congratulations to both cyber GRX and managed methods. Uh, obviously they are doing something right. All right. Big news. Uh, lots of news this week out of the Colorado security scene, but that's it for news. Let's go ahead and move over to the Slack message of the week. Big thanks to Andre Gata, who is our sponsor on this. Andre, we appreciate you very much. Uh, the winner this week is Michael Steffen. Michael uh, had posted the kind of breaking news around Chronicle, which is one of the alphabet, which is 
formerly Google. Right. Um, it's a lot of things. Uh, the, the, anyway, Chronicle has a new product called Backstory, which is really kind of their network-ish Splunk. Or yeah. The internet Splunk, I guess. It, it sounds like um, hosted, sort of hosted Splunk, right? Yeah. And reading some of and hearing about some of the things that they talked about, it sounds really cool. Uh, so big thanks to, to Michael for posting that and sharing it with the community. Um, he'll get to pick something from the Colorado Equal Security store. I know that there are some new things in the store, and I'm excited to, to see what Michael picks uh, from the brand new selection. Yeah, I added a bunch of stuff. So go check it out. And thanks for Andre Gata for sponsoring the Slack Messenger of the Week. We have a calendar of events on the website as well. If you want to go take a look at what's coming up in the community over the next several months, um, you can go out there and see it this week. Uh, is the big conference, the the big uh, OWASP Denver conference that's going to be on the 14th at the Cable Center at DU. Um, so you guys can check that, take a look there. I'll, I will be there at least for part of the day, probably not the whole time, but looking forward to that. I'm really unhappy. I'm going to miss seeing Troy Hunt kick the event off, but um, that should be pretty interesting as well. Yeah, and uh, I will be there as well. So I look forward to seeing people there. So let's, uh, I guess let's talk about all of our events, um, we just talked about Snowfrock. On the 11th through the 14th, ASIS is having their PSA Tech event, which is their March 2019 meeting. On uh, on the, the 12th, SecureSet is doing a beginner's intro to capture the flag. On the 12th and 13th, ISSA Denver is doing their March meeting. Um, on the 14th, after you go to Snowfrock, you can, see, you can go over to Mile High Stadium and watch the sea level at Mile High event. Uh, you can go bid on hanging out with your favorite technology celebrities. I know that there will be a number of CISOs there. I'm going to be there at the event and come say hi if you make it. And uh, I believe it was last week we talked about, um, we talked with Jimmy Woodward um, about CTFs. And I mentioned that we were going to be putting CTFs into the event calendar. So this is our first one. Uh, on the 15th, the UCS, UCSB ICTF for 2019 is happening. So if you go to uh, the Slack channel and check out the CTF channel there, you can find out more details and participate with the Colorado Equal Security team. Awesome. Um, on the 19th, the Cloud Security Alliance is doing their March meeting. You guys can join them there. Uh, and then on the 21st, ISACA Denver is doing their March chapter meeting. Fantastic. Let's go ahead and move over to jobs. Actually, before we jump to jobs, I yes. do want to look a little into the future, Rob. Let's do it. Rocky Mountain Information Security Conference is June 4th through 6th, and we have all of our keynotes 100% locked in. So Let's I, not give them all away at once, Alec. That's, that's a lot of giving away it, it all is. in one week. Should, what, should we start at the beginning? Why don't we start with the first one? So uh, we are, again, going back to an opening keynote this year. So that will be the evening of Tuesday, June 4th. Uh, Michelle Dennity, who is the chief privacy officer for Cisco, is going to be kicking off the conference for us. That's going to be fantastic. So we're going to have the community day on that Tuesday. There'll be some training events. Then there'll be the job fair. Yep. And uh, so I, even some meetings from local chapters, right? Uh, so we are, we are not doing the local chapter meetings okay. this year, but there will be the job fair, yep. a reception, and we will uh, have Michelle Dennity speaking. Awesome. Looking forward to that. And will there be alcohol? I believe that there will be alcohol as it is a reception, food even. Fantastic. And maybe next week we could talk about the uh, the keynote that's going to kick off on Wednesday. Yes, I think Sounds, we can do that. It's a nice teaser. All right. So now we can jump over to jobs and you can kick that off, Rob. All right. I, I am hiring a, a few different positions at, at Ping right now. Uh, top of the list, I'm hiring a manager of security operations and engineering. Um, if, that's, if you want to come help us run our security infrastructure program, 
Um, I'd love to hear from you. Or a new one that just got posted. I didn't, I didn't even know that it was posted and, I sh- and Alex found it for the show notes. Thank you for doing that. We're hiring a new product security engineer. This is really an application security engineer. If you are a former developer or a current developer even who wants to get more into security and helping us build security into the software development lifecycle, I want to talk to you. Um, this, this is a position that's, uh, that's going to be really fun. Um, we are also... Uh, look, it's not posted quite yet, but reach out to me if you want to talk about it. We are also looking to hire a a, a leader for that team, a product security uh, team lead who's going to help us. Uh, basically, we want to divide the team up because we, we've got too many engineers for one person to to lead by themselves, someone to help lead a, a team of about five different engineers. So is this a management role, Rob? Uh, it is. It will be a, a team lead that we will, we're thinking will turn into a manager here in, in the next year or so, basically depending on who we hire. If we hire the right gotcha. person who wants to be a manager right away, we could probably make that happen immediately. We got to figure that out. Gotcha. Moving beyond the ping identity jobs, CenturyLink is looking for an information security lead penetration tester. They also had a senior information security lead job posted as well. So if you're more senior... You can apply to that one instead. Um, and, you know, just as a little bit of a teaser, it's not this week, but we did just sit down with the new CSO over at CenturyLink, Chris Betts. And if you, uh, you know, if you want to know more about that program, give it another week or so and he'll be on the show. I'm looking forward to it. I did meet Chris at RSA, but I'd like to hear more. Uh, next job, NBC Universal is hiring a cybersecurity senior active directory architect. That's interesting. Yeah, that does sound interesting. Most Active Directory architects are not specifically focused on security. Agreed. And not cybersecurity, even more so. Yes. Um, (laughs) Altvia is looking for a security and IT manager slash DevOps engineer. That's a lot of hats. So this was an interesting looking job too. Um, It looked about half security and half DevOps engineer. Um, if you are someone that maybe is looking to get more towards management and security, but also, um, you know, keep your hand in the technical world, this might be a job for you. Bank of America is looking to hire a senior information security officer, parenthetically bison. I'm not sure what bison is that. Is that not what that says? (laughs) No, no, that says, that says Biso. Oh, uh, sorry. Almost, almost the same. Uh, connect for health Colorado is looking for a security analyst too. uh, the Gaming Labs International organization is looking to hire a security specialist slash entry level. You hear this, everyone? Entry level. Yes, it did look so. Five years experience required. <laughs> CISSP. Uh, uh, PhD. <laughs> I'm just kidding, guys. Just kidding. Uh, Ball Aerospace is looking for a technical intern in cybersecurity. And finally, CrowdStrike is hiring a channel solutions architect focused on the uh, this region, the central slash Midwest region. Cool. Well, that is it for the news this week. I think we're going to kick it over to the feature interview, which with, with, is with uh, James Condon. Oh, yeah. Um, James, yeah. I wanted to get this one released pretty quickly because James actually was at ProtectWise for, I think he was like employee number nine or something like that. So we get a little bit of ProtectWise conversation, and yeah. especially relevant since they just got purchased. For sure. But he's not there anymore. Now, he, he actually moved to Lacework just a few months ago, and we get to hear about his path and uh, and you know, what he where he sees security going. Awesome, sounds like fun. All right, Alex, that's that's good. Good to good to be back doing this, and we'll uh, look forward to talking to you again next week. Sounds good, Rob. Hello, this is Stanton Meyer, CSO of CoBank. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security for Colorado security professionals by Colorado security professionals. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. 
This is Rob Reck, and I am sitting with James Condon today. Um, James, you are currently is it the director of research or threat research? Yeah, director of research uh, at LaceWorks. Yes. Which uh, we'll get to learn about LaceWorks. Uh, to be honest, I didn't know them until you know several months ago. I think you know probably about the same time you went over there is when I first heard about LaceWorks, and I'm looking forward to having you tell us about that. But as you know, I like to start these interviews by getting a little bit more of the personal touch. Um, and what I just found out is you're a native Coloradan, but you didn't grow up here in the middle of Denver, right? Yep. So yeah. talk to me about where you're from. Yeah, so um, native to Colorado, uh, grew up in Conifer, and then specifically in Conifer, grew up on top of Conifer Mountain, which was pretty cool because our house was at 9,600 feet. So we kind of had like this different like uh, elevation that you don't normally see uh, in the lower parts of the foothills. So had a pretty unique experience growing up there. So Lots is, of so. What's the elevation of Conifer like yeah. proper? So Conifer proper, like Conifer High School area, it's about eight thousand two hundred feet. Okay, so another thousand plus feet lower. Yep. I yep. Know, was it Was it Leadville is the highest town or city in Colorado? And, yeah, and it's like just over ten thousand. So you yep. guys are really not too far from that. Yeah, so we were pretty close. I mean, it's almost almost the ten thousand mark. Uh, the very top of Confer Mountain was 10,000 feet. What's the tree line? How high is the tree line? The tree line, line I think, is between 12 and... Oh, okay, well, quite a bit about 12 around there. Okay. Yeah. So, so what is it like to grow up on the top of a mountain, you know, not too far away from um, So for me growing up, it was a blast because, you know, I didn't have to, you know, deal with commuting down to work mm -hmm. or anything like that. Um, but kind of more of the interesting things is, you know, we'd get so much snow. So... During the school years, we were part of the Jeffco School District, and uh, to get a snow day, you know, the, the schools down in, in Denver that were in Jeffco would kind of need to make the call. So growing up on Confer Mountain, you know, we'd get a snow, and then we'd have, you know, five-foot snow drifts, you know, blocking the door and things like that. And then, uh, you know, we'd get and watch the news and look for the scrolling, like which schools were closed, and then Jeffco would be open, and it would just be kind of crazy because we're like, we don't even know if we can get to school. So uh, the buses would come, it would take them, you know, an hour later than usual, and then we would go down the hill, sometimes we'd get stuck, we'd get to school, you know, sometime around noon, and then by the time we'd get there, they'd be like, okay, you know what, we need to send everyone home because <laughs> the snow's too bad, and so then we'd get home about the regular time uh, because we'd get snuck, stuck again and stuff like that. Uh, so school was an interesting experience, um, but we had a good time because had a couple acres on a pitch, so during the winter it was you know, doing lots of sledding, you know, snowboarding in the backyard, uh, fun stuff like that, things that people travel to the mountains to do. And then in the summer, we actually leveled out an area and we, we built a sand volleyball pit. So oh, really? um, we were able to, you know, have summer nights doing some fun stuff there. So are you a good sand volleyball player? Um, I, it depends on how you, how you define good. So um, if it's someone who doesn't competitively play, then, then I'm all right. Uh, but from a competitive standpoint, like an actual team, uh, no, I wouldn't be. We play more for fun. So. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Um, so you grew up in, in Conifer on the top of the mountain. Uh, did you graduate from Conifer High School? Yep. So went to Conifer High School. It actually opened, uh, I think it was two years before I went to high school. So it was pretty new. Um, then after... Confer High School, went to Colorado School of Mines. Oh, really? I don't, yeah. I don't think I knew that. That's great. Um, is, you, went, you went to Mines, and what you, it looks like you majored in computer science there. Yeah, so 
Major in computer science, was on an Air Force ROTC scholarship. Um, also did uh, cross country and track um, my junior and senior year. Yeah. So it was a fun time, I loved it. Golden was like a great place. Uh, the atmosphere of the school, you know, it's really small. So you, you kind of recognize everyone on campus. Uh, everyone has a similar focus, so it was, it was great. I loved it there. And when you went there, were you like thinking, hey, I want to be a computer guy, I want to be a security guy, or was it just, I like, I, I, you have an affinity for computers, yeah. so you went after it? What, what was the intention? Um, so it was actually kind of interesting. I, I enjoyed, you know, uh, math and science, particularly math. I would say that was kind of my strong suit in high school, so I figured I'd probably major in something engineering-ish. Uh, in high school, I liked, you know, writing, you know, programs for my calculator. Uh, you know, whether it was for math stuff or, or games. So I was like, well, you know, maybe computers and programming might be a good fit. And then uh, initially when I got the scholarship, it was for a technical degree. Uh, at first I was like, you know, physics sounds really cool. And then after doing a year first, you know, year of physics at Mines, I was like, okay, uh, this is, you know, not something I'm super excited about. So I switched to computer science my sophomore year and that's, that's kind of how I ended up there. Mm -hmm. With, did you have a, an end in mind, like, hey, I'm um, computer science so I can do X when I'm done? No, so I actually didn't have an end in mind because I was more focused on, uh, you know, careers in the Air Force okay. and, and things I might be doing there. So I kind of had looked into a different, few different career options, and I was at the point where I was like, you know, I might be doing something computer-related, it, it might be something that I'm not. Uh, I was kind of seeing where things would go. But it was more to do something I enjoyed during college that I know you know might come in handy later. Okay, so you, so you graduated from uh, from School of Mines and, and then obviously ROTC. I, I assume that means you were basically signed up to go join the Air Force. Yep, right? yep. So the way it works is um, you do ROTC. There's there's kind of two different ways you can do it. Uh, you know, voluntarily where you can do the first couple of years uh, with no commitment or you go in on a scholarship and then after your sophomore year is, is when you have a, a commitment that once you graduate you're going into the Air Force. So I knew early on since I was doing a scholarship that that was the route I was going to go. And then we had a small group of folks at Mines who did ROTC but our main detachment was actually at CU Boulder. Mm. So you know once or twice, sometimes three times a week we'd be up at Boulder doing uh, those activities. And then as soon as uh, I graduated, then commissioned in the Air Force and uh, started my gig there. So what did you do in the Air Force? So in the Air Force, I was in the Office of Special Investigations. Um, and it's kind of like the, the FBI of the Air Force, so to speak. There's a number of different things that, that OSI does, but um, one of the big things is investigating you know, felony level crimes. Is that uh, crimes committed by Air Force members? Or yes. Okay. Yeah. Or it could be. It could also have some sort of nexus to, to Air Force personnel. But in general, it's um, it could be crimes committed by Air Force members or um, crimes that are affecting them. It really kind of depends. We would do joint stuff with FBI and, and other branches mm -hmm. as well. Okay. Um, Can you give it, any examples of the kinds of cases you worked on? Yeah. So um, as far as cases. You know, when, when you first start out, I actually went into a specialty uh, as a computer crime investigator. And um, we do a couple different things uh, on, on the base. We would, you know, investigate things like, um, you know, potential uh, drugs, uh, you know, 
crimes like that, uh, fraud, you know, things like that. And then on the computer side, we would get our hands in pretty much any type of criminal case that would involve any electronic media where we would basically uh, do forensics on it, prepare it for trial, you know, testify that, you know, the hard drive that we pulled off the computer hadn't been tampered with mm. and, and, you know, show the chain of custody of how we maintain the evidence, things like that. Yeah. So how did you go about learning how to do this stuff? I, I'm guessing that your computer science degree in college did not prepare you for forensics and military level yeah. investigations. Yeah, um, so it was actually you know, quite a bit different. Um, so so it, in doing computer science in school, especially at Mines, it was math computer science at the time, very heavy emphasis on math um, and kind of more of, uh, you know, theory and, and stuff like that. And then in Air Force, it was, you know, digital forensics, mostly on like Windows boxes. So it was completely different, completely different systems. So they basically have a pipeline of training courses that you go to and you get certifications along the way. So like one of them is, you know, a couple week course on how to use NCASE for forensic investigations. Um, and then on top of that, when you become a special agent in OSI, you go to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Academy mm -hmm. where you learn just kind of the basics of, call it 1811, which is, um, you know, investigating crimes as a federal agent. And uh, there you kind of get all the different pieces and start putting them together. And through a series of training, you know, after like a year and a half or so, you're at the level where, where you can do the job. Hmm. So you, it looks like you did that job for about four years. Yep. Is that right? And so you'd say the first 18 months was, was really like figuring out how to do the job well? Yeah, first 18 months is really going to a lot of different training, uh, you know, shadowing. Uh, your first year you're called, uh, you know, you're on probation it's called. And so you go through like a year of, of mentoring and, you know, like updates on proficiency and things like that before, you know, you become like a fully fledged, uh, you know, special yeah. agent. So can you share anything, you know, during the, the four years you were there that you're especially proud of? Um, yeah, so um, we actually, we got to work quite a bit, um, you know, on, on the Intel side. Got to see a lot, a lot of cool stuff. Um, can't really go into the details of some of those, but it's pretty neat because got the opportunity to work with, you know, high-ranking people in the government, high-ranking people, uh, from different agencies and from that kind of got some pretty cool accolades like mm. you know special agent of the quarter for you know the the region and, and things like that yeah. so that was always a lot of fun because it was really doing kind of some cutting-edge you know government only stuff and I yeah. really enjoyed that part where were you stationed during all this I was stationed at Travis Air Force Base okay. and so that's you know halfway between San Francisco and Sacramento yeah I know I know that area pretty well did you, uh, did you mostly stay on the base or did you get to explore the area too? Um, so I, may, I mostly stayed stateside, uh, mostly doing, working out of the base. Uh, and then I would travel, um, you know, in that region sometimes. The other thing is there's only a handful of uh, computer crime investigators uh, in OSI. So we would support all the different bases that had smaller mm -hmm. detachments. So. If they had certain cases that they need assistance with or, or education, we'd fly around a lot to that. But um, a lot of my time was, was spent at Travis. Um, how many folks doing your job were there across the whole Air Force? Um, I used to know this number. I, I, I want to say it's, it was between 30 and 50. 
you know, we'd have... That's a small number. Yeah, it's it's a small number. Um, we would now keep in mind Air Force is a really large organization, so there's a lot of other people doing kind of similar things, okay. just not in OSI um, and for different different reasons. But uh, the amount that we had was, was pretty small. I think at our office, we'd fluctuate between, you know, five to ten folks at any given okay. time. And then we had five major offices that, that people were at. And was it pretty competitive to get in or did you, were you aiming for this or was it like yeah. someone just randomly, you know, picks your name out of a hat and says, you're, you're up? Um, yeah, so it was, it was really competitive to get in, especially out of um, ROTC or if people come out of the Air Force Academy. Um, so you have kind of the end of year and then the middle of year when people are commissioning based on when they graduate school. And then from that, you know, they typically only take like two to five people out of the entire pool of people graduating ROTC and uh, the academy uh, to go into OSI. So mm -hmm. there's, you know, the whole year before it was, you know, I did like a summer program where I interned at a detachment for three weeks and then you have this whole long uh, application process, uh, you know, background checks going through uh, that whole part. So definitely really competitive to get in. Uh, a lot of people in OSI, you, you can't go there like if you enlist like straight out of, of boot camp like you do in other careers. You have to spend so many years and make it to certain ranks before mm -hmm. you can cross train over into it. Okay. Um, so yeah. All right. Uh, so you were there for about four years. Yep. Uh, what happened at the end of that four years? So at the end of the four years, you know, I was kind of making my decision of, you know, do I stay in the Air Force? Do I go in the private sector? Um, at that time, a lot of the private prior people I had worked with uh, went on to Mandiant. Hmm. And so, um, like Kevin Mandia was prior OSI um, uh, as well, and, and some of the other people in there. And I think kind of at the end, I was, I was working on a lot of cool stuff, but I was concerned about, you know, kind of moving every two years. And, and the biggest factor for me is I really enjoyed what I was doing, and I knew, like, as an officer, that <clears throat> it would take me out of the specialty. Mm. Uh, so eventually I would go into more kind of, you know, generic roles I wouldn't be doing. Just like leadership roles? Yep. Gotcha. Exactly. And so uh, Mandiant was quickly building a reputation as kind of the go-to in the private sector for doing instant response and, <clears throat> and dealing with these type of things. So that was kind of the natural fit, and, and that's where I ended up going next. Yeah. So what did you do for Mandiant? This is before FireEye acquired, right? Yep. So this is pre-FireEye. So this is 2011, um, 2013. So actually, at that time, they had uh, they had a really strong need for people with skills uh, specific to network forensics. So a lot of the consultants at the time were doing uh, forensics on you know Windows boxes or uh, reverse engineers for malware analysis. And they were just kind of spinning up um, uh, like kind of a network. We called it the uh, Network Threat Assessment Program, but kind of the network side of the house. So I'd done a lot on the network side before. And so I kind of split my time between the professional services doing instant response and then the managed services. And essentially what we do is, is I would analyze the network traffic that we were collecting. I would go through it and then write a report. So for instant response engagements, uh, a lot of them were super active. This was uh, during the time where, you know, there's big breaches in the news and kind of Mandiant was at the forefront of that. 
So we would spend time uh, going through the network traffic, decoding, you know, command and control that we were seeing and the writing reports on it. I remember certain, certain engagements we went into, we'd have uh, five to seven different APT groups operating at any given time. So sometimes it would be the full day of, of going through the different uh, protocols that we were seeing and then documenting out what they did and seeing if they were doing anything mm. new if they're stealing any data, figuring out what the data was, and, and then passing that on. Any, so, any, any particular incidents you can, you can talk about, you know, with or without the details that identify the incident, just to give a flavor of um, uh, what you might have run into? Yeah, you know, I, we saw a lot of kind of the same groups doing a lot of the same stuff. So I was there when the APT1 report came mm -hmm. out and... Um, Helping. Uh, maybe some folks listening who don't know what that is. Maybe. Yeah. It was a big deal, I remember. Yeah, so APT1 report was, was a really big deal in that at the time that it came out, um, there, wasn't, there wasn't a whole bunch of open like threat intel sharing going on. Um, there was a lot of kind of things in the news about you know, state-sponsored attacks and stuff like that. And so APT1 report was basically disclosing one of the groups that we were tracking and throwing attribution to who they were, you know, how we came about that, who some of the personas were, uh, how we gathered that information. And specifically that group was really interesting because before, the, before it came out, they were, they were everywhere. They were at so many organizations. They were really large um, and they were notoriously bad at OPSEC. So that's kind of how they're easy to track. <coughs> One of the reasons that they got picked for the report is, you know, they, since their, you know, OPSEC was so poor and they'd kind of grown past their capacity, the, the thought of kind of burning some of, some of their TTPs, uh, kind of risk reward, uh, you know, was, was a bit favorable there. Hmm. So this report came out and, um, you know, it was, it was a really big deal because I think after that report, it's changed how we share threat intelligence publicly. Um, so now, like 2019, we talk about different APT groups all the time. Mm -hmm. We talk about their naming. We talk about what they do. We write reports on them, and a lot of it's really public. Before that, I mean, things were very close hold. Right. Um, and the advantage of the things being very close hold is they're a lot easier to track and they're a lot easier to detect. Um, but on the other hand, like all these companies are just getting hacked into over and over and you know there's there's nothing that we could really right. do about it so uh, you didn't mention it but it's 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 public knowledge apt1 was one of china's mm -hmm. uh, state sponsored yep. groups right and i i seem to recall it's been a long time now i seem to recall some controversy about the report was there Am I making that up? Um, do you mean recent controversy? Um, I thought I, back at the time that there was some skepticism about some of the details. It's been so long now. Um, yeah, I think the, the biggest thing at the time is there was a lot of people who were afraid that it wasn't properly coordinated with mm. um, you know different people how, in D.C. How we disclosed it. Yeah, um, but and I wasn't part of, of, of any of that, but from what from what I understand, there was a lot of coordination, there was a lot of buy-in, okay. there, was, there was a lot of different folks not, representing. Not busting operations that the government yeah. was doing against Exactly, this, this exactly. Gotcha. So there was a lot of coordination. I think the biggest thing is, you know, other people who were tracking them, um, who may not have been involved in it, whether it's like private companies or something like that, um, may have been, you know, a little upset about like, okay, this might burn some of our monitoring yeah. ops and, and things like that. So. There's definitely people on both sides of the fence, but it seems to have made a really big impact, I think in a positive way, 
uh, since then, just because, you know, the amount of public disclosure around, you know, Chinese attributed hacking in the U.S. seems to be, in general, a lot lower. Yeah. Well, you were there for about two years in Southern California, right? Yeah. Um, so I was there for a little, little over a year and then uh, wanted to get back to Colorado. So I moved back and uh, worked remotely for them. Okay. So yeah. you, you, when you were a man yet, you moved back here. Yep. Was it, and that was just like wanting to come close to friends and family or what was the reason? Yeah. So um, both myself and my wife are from out here and then both of our parents live out here. Um, my wife and I met um, out here in, in Arvada and, it, you know, we'd been out of state for about five years and a lot of it was like, you know, kind of want to get back to Denver, get yeah. back closer to family, uh, things like that. And, you know, I really miss the mountains and stuff like yeah. that. So that kind of motivated that move back here. Yeah. That's great. So you, you moved back here uh, a year later. You, it looks like you made another change. Maybe you could talk about that transition for you. Yeah. So um, I was I was working remotely for a while uh, with Mandiant. This is still pre-FireEye acquisition. Uh, I had always kind of had an itch for the startup side of the house, and the um, I, I think I joined Mandiant when it was, I was like employee 150 or something like that. Okay. Uh, so I kind of was wondering more what the, the early days were like, like, how do you build a business, how do you build this from scratch, yeah. things like that. And then through just kind of a crazy chance meeting, I met the founders of ProtectWise, who said they're working on a full PCAP solution in the cloud. And as a network analyst, usually the one thing we were missing was, you know, having all the PCAP that we wanted. Right. So that sounded like really exciting because one, it was a really cool idea. And then two, it was, it was the opportunity to um, get a front row at, uh, in a startup and kind of see how that works. So I joined there really early on. Uh, I think it was employee number eight wow. um, in, in the early days there. And so I uh, started working for them at the end of, 2000, I think it was 13. Yeah, so um, September 2013. Yep, and so started there as a as an individual contributor, just doing security research. So why does a company as small as that? You said you were employee eight. Is that mm -hmm. right? Why does an employee with eight, or excuse me, a company with eight employees need a, someone doing research at that point? Yeah. So a, a big part of it was uh, one, there was the opportunity and timing. Um, so you know, as far as you know, the amount of people in the Denver area at that time, you know, local, you know, probably not, not a lot of folks with, with the same background that I had. And then I was specialized kind of in the network side of the house. Mm. Uh, but more importantly, as you're building the product, having someone who can inform as that product gets built, like, you know, like how, what are the important ways that we detect threats? Like, you know, what are some of the things that you see in the past? Like how do, how can you kind of inform yeah. that? It's really being um, a, big, a big part of the roadmap of the product and yep. what are the features that people really need. Yep. Okay. Uh, now, I know, uh, I know your, your position evolved there over the years you were there, um, but I, I am curious, you know, when you first got there, was there the heavy focus on the UI that there, that, that there was later or did that develop mm -hmm. over time? Yeah, so uh, we always had a heavy focus there. Um, uh, there, we, we had a lot of passion around, you know, the user experience because you see in a lot of security products, usually user experience UI is, is kind of a secondary thing. Um, so that was from the very beginning, yeah. uh, an integral part of the design. Yeah, that's one of the things that stands out about ProtectWise is that it doesn't have 
you know, the command line, the DOS, the DOS uh-huh. on the web feel that yeah. you get with a lot of yep. a lot of products. Uh, so you were an individual contributor doing research for a couple of years, and how did that develop over time? Yeah, so um, then over time, as, as we started to grow, um, I moved into a director position there and then uh, started to build out a team, um, which was my favorite part, uh, was kind of, you know, building the team and watching it kind of grow over time. It's really nice when you can start collaborating with folks and be a force multiplier and kind of, you know, shaping what you do. Um, so that was, you know, a few years in, and then eventually we called ourselves the um, 401 Threat Research Group, and then, you know, 401 just being a hat tip to the HTTP response code. Um, so it was kind of our, our forbidden threat research group. And, uh, and so, yeah, we, we had a good time um, uh, doing that. And then... Uh, and what, what kind of work did you guys do as 401? Yeah. So we did, we did quite a few things. We, we supported uh, a lot of product initiatives. So uh, we'd have different agile teams that we'd embed with. And if they needed someone with specific threat expertise, whether it's researching a protocol, learning you know, what are the important attributes of that protocol we need to pull out, uh, that was a big part of it. Another part of it was uh, seeing what was going on in our customer environment. So we'd manage the threat intelligence that we'd apply. Uh, we would also... Um, look for, you know, issues with, you know, false positives or uh, any interesting findings that we could pass back to our customers. That was a really big part of it. And then uh, just working with others in the community, like sharing whenever we could, whenever we'd find something new or interesting that we could pass on um, or just, you know, tips and tricks. So one of the guys on our team wrote a blog about, you know, how to you know, review SMB as a security analyst, like what you look for and things like that, like a practical guide. And that was really cool. We got a lot of great hits and a lot of great feedback on that. And so that was neat seeing that what we were putting out and producing was, you know, helping others get better at their craft. We certainly covered a number of your guys' write-ups on on the podcast as well. We appreciate the what you guys contributed out to the industry, it sounds like you had kind of a dual focus internally, helping mm-hmm. your guys' product and your teams internally yeah. get better, but then also you know, just generally helping the industry. Yep. Pretty cool. Um, so yeah, you're, I know you're not there anymore, so talk to me about that. Why'd you leave? Um, yeah, so you know, I'd been on the kind of traditional enterprise security side of the house for a long time, really f- hyper-focused on the network side. Um, I never really spent too much time on endpoints, spent a little bit of time on malware analysis and time on threat intelligence. So, uh, you know, I've been getting excited about, you know, what's going on in the cloud because there's so much adoption going there. There's, we're really changing the business model and how we deliver applications. Um, and to me, this seemed like, okay, this is a really big, uh, you know, possible new attack surface. And not everyone really has it figured out because it doesn't really fit into our traditional paradigm. So to me, it was it was an opportunity to kind of get at the beginning of an emerging market and uh, start doing research into an area that's a little bit more unknown, um, and then kind of broaden uh, the skill set and background that I have. So tell me about LaceWorks. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, assume no, someone's never heard of it before, which yeah. many listeners probably never have. Yeah. What, what do they do? Yeah. So at LaceWork. Um, we, we do quite a few different things. Um, we do cloud workload protection. And so I think kind of one of the best ways to think about it is kind of in three parts. 
So we do configuration um, compliance auditing uh, for the major cloud providers, so GCP, AWS, Azure. And so what that is is, you know, for example, in AWS, you know, monitoring CIS benchmarks. Uh, we add our own benchmarks in, and this is things where you can get alerted right away, where it's like, hey, you got an S3 bucket open, or uh, you got, you know, a new user who doesn't have multi-factor uh, set up, or you just set up a security group that's open to the world. Uh, those type of things, and it, it's interesting. They're low-hanging fruit, but um, we see a lot of the root of a lot of bad things that happen in the cloud start there. Uh, the other thing that we do is, is we do uh, anomaly detection on different resources. So, for example, in AWS, we can ingest CloudTrail logs. Um, we do some machine learning where basically we understand the relationships of the different entities in your CloudTrail logs, and uh, we look for deviations from that. So, you know, maybe users logging in from unusual locations, uh, you know, things along those lines. Then we also uh, have a Linux agent that uh, you can deploy, and it it's does uh, host IDS. So we monitor, you know, what processes are going on, what your applications are doing, what the network traffic is. Uh, we do baselining of that to look for anomalous behavior. Uh, we can we have visibility into containers and orchestration systems like uh, Kubernetes, and then uh, we so also you guys have visibility into like a, a Docker container. Yeah, so we um, we at have the host level. Yeah, so for example, let's say you have like an EC2 instance, and then you have a bunch of different Docker containers. Um, our agent will reason that you know the traffic that we're seeing, which containers it's coming from, details about okay. what the containers are. So it's not like, for example, like a VPC flow log where you just have you know IP addresses and stuff. We yeah. can really map and tie all that mm -hmm. together. Okay. And then um, we do a couple other things. We do like file integrity monitoring. So you know, mm -hmm. if, you know, a new file gets written, we check it for known bad stuff. You know, malware, things yeah. like that. Traditional threat intelligence. So uh, crypto jacking's big. So alerting on connections to mining pools, all that. So pretty robust uh, amount of things that we're doing. Trying to give a single pane of glass because we see a lot of people have their you know doing hybrid models where they got some things in Azure, they got some things in AWS, and they want to come to the same place and use the same set of tools. Yeah. So why, what do you do for Lacework? Like what's the, mm -hmm. what's the reason that they said, Let's we need to hire this guy? Yeah, um, so I do a few different things. Uh, one is work with the product team um, on you know, adding new things around efficacy. So, uh, you know, we're coming out with with a new system where you can write rules for what the agencies. So developing what those rules are, um, adding new types of threat intelligence, uh, things like that. So anything efficacy related, uh, testing. You know, do we catch this? Do we catch that? Um, you know, informing along those lines. And then uh, you know, there's the whole thought leadership side of the house too. So letting other people know what we are and, and what we do. So we do this through blogging and speaking at conferences, yeah. webinars, things like that. Um, and then uh, the other part is, is working with, with our sales team to uh, you know, make sure that you know, we arm them with, with the knowledge they need about what the current threat landscape is and, and what they can kind of expect and also monitoring you know, what's going on in our customers and, and alerting yeah. when we see something interesting there. I know you, you did uh, the ISSA talks, uh, was it in February, right? Yep. Um, 
and really talking about Kubernetes, or I guess more orchestration more generally, but yeah. Kubernetes is the big Yeah, thing. so um, the talks were pretty specific uh, to Kubernetes, okay. and so I've been going around, been doing a lot of specific research into Kubernetes. Uh, the reason is, is you know, Kubernetes is really at the intersection of a lot of these different technologies coming together and these different shifts that we have. So um, everything from people migrating to public cloud to people moving to containerized applications and workloads. Um, and then you got Kubernetes just like really taking off, especially over the last couple of years. It seems like they're totally winning the orchestration right. kind of arms race. And so with that comes, you know, a, a new area that looking at the security side of it is this will get more under a microscope as more people use it for you know attackers so we've been kind of going around since kubernetes is, is new to a lot of folks um and doing some edu education around you know what are some of the security threats behind it how are ways that you can harden it um, what are things that we're finding so that's what those talks have been on that's great um so th let's just you know take a step back and you, you've made recently made the transition from kind of the traditional enterprise data center approach to mm -hmm. getting more cloud focused. I made that transition a few years ago, and mm -hmm. I'd love, you know, I think there's a lot of listeners who either um, are thinking about, you know, they're going to have to make that, or are in the midst of it and they don't know how to do it. Yeah. What kind of guidance would you give for someone who, who's, you know, thinking about, hey, this is coming up soon, and, and I need to yeah. get my mind in the right place and, and understand how to do this. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really good question. Um, so I, it, it's an area that I wanted to dive into sooner, but I was always a little bit kind of intimidated by it because you know it was a lot of new technology, a lot of new concepts I wasn't too familiar. But from a security point of view, like if it's a traditional security guy looking to get into you know cloud security or uh, DevSecOps, it's really a shift from um, you know the security. Folks have always told the developers, like, you need to become more security savvy. Well, now mm -hmm. it's a little bit flipped. It's more like security folks need to become more dev savvy. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say kind of the big thing for someone outside of that world is, you know, understanding what DevOps is, wh where did DevOps come from, like, why is that important? Uh, understanding how the major cloud providers operate, more specifically uh, shared you know, security responsibility model is really big. And then um, once once you kind of get there, it's it's learning a lot about the toolings and then kind of the landscape around, you know, what are kind of the risks that are associated with this. And I think what you see is, is now we have a really big emphasis on speed, speed of innovation. And, uh, you know, in the old days, security could kind of block that, but now we need to be more of, of guardrails. So getting in that mindset of, of, of how we can deal with that and deal with lower visibility and figure out how to bridge between teams. Yeah, those are kind of the big big takeaways with with making the that transition. Right to me, yeah. I think it would. One of the th challenges I've seen from uh, people trying to move over previously is it, is if they'll trust their vendors, mm -hmm. uh, their, their legacy vendors about how to move yeah. to the cloud. There's just yeah. an awful lot of well, just. Just you know, move over the same technologies you've always used yeah. uh, in a data center into the cloud, and just setting aside lace work and, and what you guys do. Mm -hmm. What are the, what would you say are the biggest technical differences in like how we implement controls mm -hmm. in a data center environment versus how we do it in the cloud? Yeah, um, so I think the biggest one, especially as a network guy, is you know you don't 
own the network anymore, right? Yeah. Um, everything is, is virtualized, so a lot of those traditional controls that you have, like, I don't think they poured over well. Um, and then the other big thing to really understand is, you know, before you're dealing with, you know, servers that, you know, people access and people's laptops and workstations and, you know, we had bring your own device, which, you know, started to, to change things as far as, you know, building a moat around your enterprise. But now one of the big things is just understanding like informal workloads, like, you know, workloads are going to come up and down. Um, how do you reason about that? You know, what do you need to track? What do you need to save? What do you need to log? Um, those are all kind of kind of the big pieces there. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm gonna do a little shift away from that, and, and you know, you, you're a Colorado native. You yeah. you chose to come back here on purpose. Uh, I'd love to understand. You know, do you get involved with the Colorado security community outside of your employers? Uh, and if so, how do you do so? Um, so I hadn't done a lot with with the local. Uh, Colorado security community. So before I, I previously, like in the past, a lot of the security communities that I really interface a lot with were either on the East Coast, like Washington DC folks, or you know, on the West Coast, yeah. you know, Bay Area folks. Uh, so when I came back, I was actually really unaware of, you know, what all was going here. Yeah. And the thing that I've, that's been really exciting in the last, you know, couple of years is there's more and more kind of happening. So. Uh, now that you know I'm working uh, remotely, um, one of the big things I'm trying to do is, is get a lot more involved in, mm -hmm. in, with Denver. So, like you'd mentioned, I, I did some talks at ISSA, um, went to the CSA summit, uh, had yeah. a good time there. Want to get more involved with with CSA, um, OWASPs as well is, is another one I'm looking to do. Um, I actually haven't been to uh, Armisk before. There's usually oh, scheduling things, make it. so yeah. I'll be there this year. Awesome. Um, so yeah, just just looking to really get get involved in in those groups. Yeah. Now. Have you ever done the the city sec stuff? Those. No, I haven't done city sec. Um, I've done like B sides. Seems though. like a group you'd like. The the they get together once a month at different beer places. They I think they. They have the Denver one, and they also have the Boulder one. I yeah. don't know which one would be more convenient for you. Um, you know, probably the, probably the Boulder one, but it would it'd be cool to at least check out both. I've, I've seen look. on the Slack channel uh, and just following Colorado Security uh, on the Slack a little bit more. But, um, yeah, I've, I've seen some postings for that. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. Cool. Well, you know, I, that's it for everything I wanted to make sure I asked you about. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I, di that I didn't bring up yet? Um, you know, I think... I think kind of the last thing like I would add kind of on the cloud security side is mm. there's there's a lot of uncertainty like out there because you know we have a lot of open source projects kind of dominating the landscape when something new comes out a lot of traditional people are like you know this is going to be the end of the internet like everything's mm -hmm. going to break but I really think the way that we're deploying um, and running applications in the cloud is a much more secure and safe model than it was before and a lot of times what we run into is is the biggest issues come from not fully understanding the capabilities and in initial configuration but after that you know you can have a really cool model of of uh you know keeping the bad guys out so i think that's exciting and i think uh spreading some of the optimism about uh security because you get a lot of cynicism yeah. in this space that's really yeah. important that's great i i agree the cloud is our best chance 
to, to make you know to get more secure, but we do need to RTFM right. Read the yeah. read the freaking manual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gotta know what you're signing up for. Yeah. Cool. Well, James, sure. thanks so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks uh, for having hopefully me. Hopefully, we can catch up again soon, and I look forward to hearing how lace work goes in the yeah. future. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.